Well, welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is May 28th, 2023, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's a pleasure to welcome in discussion members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. To keep the discussion flowing and ensure everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first name only. I've suggested three themes and excerpts from today's reading of the last of three parts of Plato's Symposium, covering from 212D to the end of the dialogue, and these are posted on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. We can focus on these or any of the other themes, and for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. As we exchange thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. In our previous two sessions on the symposium, we heard six speeches on the subject of love, from Phaedrus, Bassanius, Eryximachus, Aristophanes, Agathon, and, through Socrates, Diotima. Each of these was made from a different perspective, and maybe understanding differences in perspective is a key to knowledge of what love is. If true understanding can arise only in dialectic, we observe that in each perspective there are grains of truth about the nature of love, and maybe today we can piece the dialectical puzzle together to reach some conclusions on the timeless truth of love ourselves. Our own discussion two weeks ago brought out a number of fascinating perspectives. Referring to Aristophanes' speech about the origin of humans as spheres who Zeus cut in half, Eric equated the spheres to souls and wondered how many times our souls have been divided. In reference to Diotima's statement that we are all pregnant with love in search for immortality, Ernest observed that some, like Leonardo da Vinci, give birth to a memory that doesn't end through their works of art. Adam caused us to consider whether the opposite of love is not hate, but death, as he told the story of soldiers sitting on a beach looking to opposite horizons that lay on either side of them. Darren questioned the idea of love as a quest for immortality, at least as an end in itself, when perhaps the ultimate search is for the good. And certainly the dialogue does reference the good, the true, and the beautiful in a number of passages. One thing that struck us in our last discussion was Diotima's portrayal of love as needy and wanting, as a cause that drives us to seek a more perfect state. This presentation was in contrast to Agathon's depiction of love as perfection, needing no further cause. So today's reading opens with a seemingly crude, perhaps artless demonstration of love by Alcibiades, the Athenian politician who burst loudly and very drunkenly into the symposium after the speeches had been rendered and declares his love for Socrates. Alcibiades appears extremely needy, stricken and pained by Socrates' lack of reciprocation for his desire. But near the beginning of the dialogue, Socrates declared uncharacteristically that he knew the art of love. What then is the art of love, and is this art a subject of knowledge? Does Alcibiades display any art in his drunken state and his talk of shame between lovers? What does the stark contrast between Alcibiades' alcohol-fueled speech and those who preceded him tell us about love? If love, as Diotima says, is a search for immortality, then Alcibiades doesn't seem to present immortal characteristics in his grand entrance, or for that matter, a concern for his immortality. His dramatic entrance is, however, perhaps a demonstration of the art of human life, and Plato's depiction of it is certainly artful. So I thought we could start with a reading from 213b to 214a, starting when Alcibiades has made his entrance, but hasn't yet noticed Socrates is present. 
So let me just share my screen. And again, this starts at 213b. What with the ivy and all, he didn't see Socrates, who had made room for him on the couch as soon as he saw him. So Alcibiades sat down between Socrates and Agathon, and as soon as he did so, he put his arms around Agathon, kissed him, and placed the ribbons on his head. Agathon asked his slaves to take Alcibiades' sandals off. We can all three fit on my couch, he said. What a good idea, Alcibiades replied. But wait a moment, who's the third? As he said this, he turned around, and it was only then that he saw Socrates. No sooner had he seen him than he leapt up and cried. Good Lord, what's going on here? It's Socrates. You've trapped me again. You always do this to me. All of a sudden you'll turn up out of nowhere where I least expect you. Well, what do you want now? Why did you choose this particular couch? Why aren't you with Aristophanes or anyone else we can tease you about? But no, you figured out a way to find a place next to the most handsome man in the room. I beg you, Agathon, Socrates said. Protect me from this man. You can't imagine what it's like to be in love with him. From the very first moment he realized how I felt about him, he hasn't allowed me to say two words to anybody else. What am I saying? I can't so much as look at an attractive man, but he flies into a fit of jealous rage. He yells, he threatens. He can hardly keep from slapping me around. Please try to keep him under control. Could you perhaps make him forgive me? And if you can't, if he gets violent, will you defend me? The fierceness of his passion terrifies me. I shall never forgive you, Alcibiades cried. I promise you, you'll pay for this. But for the moment, he said, turning to Agathon, give me some of these ribbons. I'd better make a wreath for him as well. Look at that magnificent head. Otherwise, I know he'll make a scene. He'll be grumbling that, though I crowned you for your first victory, I didn't honor him even though he has never lost an argument in his life. So Alcibiades took the ribbons, arranged them on Socrates' head, and lay back on the couch. Immediately, however, he started up again. Friends, you look sober to me. We can't have that. Let's have a drink. Remember our agreement? We need a master of ceremonies. Who should it be? Well, at least till you are all too drunk to care, I elect myself. Who else? Agathon. I want the largest cup around. No, wait, you. Bring me that cooling jar over there. He'd seen the cooling jar, and he realized it could hold more than two quarts of wine. He had the slaves fill it to the brim, drained it, and ordered them to fill it up again for Socrates. Not that the trick will have any effect on him, he told the group. Socrates will drink whatever you put in front of him, but no one yet has seen him drunk. So I thought I would start with that opening and this stark contrast of Alcibiades' grand entrance to the you know rather sedate speeches, perhaps, about love from the group previously. If we recall, you know, the symposium, this drinking party started with all of those present being quite hung over from the previous night. And so they were rather low on energy and, you know, maybe more reflective as a result. And in bursts Alcibiades here, and he certainly doesn't seem to be reflective. He doesn't seem to be holding back on anything. And he's very drunk. I mean, he's he starts off drunk and then he drinks another big jug of wine. And so he gets even more drunk. So it's certainly not a very artful presentation on his behalf, but I think it's something that we might find rather humorous and maybe we can find some connections here between his approach to love or at least displaying love and what the others have already said uh, in our previous two episodes that we discussed. And so any thoughts about this entrance and what Plato is trying to do here with this contrast, this, this extreme difference right near the end of the dialogue, a real change in tone about the subject of love? 
is Alcibiades under his own control or is he being controlled by something else? I think one of the things that we talked about in our previous episode was whether love is a cause or whether love is some end result. And maybe here we see love or this the sense of love, what Alcibiades thinks is love, is driving him to say things that he might not otherwise say uh, if he had control of himself. And so here we get this character entering the scene. He's lacking some sort of self-control, or at least something else is maybe driving him. He does proceed to talk about Socrates in quite an interesting way. And we see that right at the end of this section that I just read here, where he says, no one has yet seen Socrates drunk. He actually said that uh, near the beginning of what I read as well. And I'm wondering why this presentation of Socrates uh, with this power, and we'll see more of what Alcibiades says about Socrates' kind of unique powers later on in, in the end of the dialogue here. So, Andre, your thoughts? Well, I think from, uh, I'm just putting myself into Plato's, <laughs> trying to put myself into Plato's head, that he brings this character, Alcibiades, just as a stark contrast, just to argue from the point of view of Look, uh, love could be a, a result of just a chemical reaction, right? It's a very kind of modern way of the way a lot of people look at it, right? You just need to get drunk and you, as if it's as if the, the drink makes you fall in love with, uh, with someone, not, uh, not the good in someone or the character of someone, right? As Agaton would say previously. Uh, so, yeah, I think it was kind of necessary to bring... Um, a character like this, I think, just to balance out the whole conversation. Mm -hmm. And it does bring a, a good question, a good point. Um, is love just a bunch of chemicals and uh, you're just, uh, you know, we just stumble upon it rather than we do it consciously? Maybe some people do that, especially nowadays, you would argue. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting observation about the question of balance and the chemical reaction. And certainly there is some, you know, the, the chemistry of alcohol is in play here and does cause some different reaction. One would wonder how Alcibiades would act if he weren't drunk. That would be an interesting thing to see. So yeah, definitely calls into question, I guess, maybe another perspective on love then. There's the thoughtful approach to love taken with some perspective and retrospective and introspection, but here none of that is going on. Uh, it, it's just purely whatever's on the top of his mind comes out. So yeah, that, that's great. Well, thank you. And Darren, your thoughts? I don't have all my thoughts about this worked out yet, but um, this speech is sort of nice, I think, coming at the end of the dialogue. I mean, I wonder if it's supposed to be a kind of like climax to the speeches even, because here we're going to have a speech from someone who is actually in love who is not just talking about love like from a distance in the abstract and so like at the end of his speech like it, it, it describes everyone was like giggling and laughing because people noticed that he was still clearly in love with Socrates <laughs> like um so and at 215e I'll just read a couple of sentences here well, I mean, I'm sure we'll get to some of this stuff later, but I mean, it, it comes back to like what happens when he, he runs into Socrates, which apparently is all the time. Like Socrates just shows up at random moments and he, and, he, and he hates it. So he says, if I were to describe for you what an extraordinary effect his words have always had on me, 
I can feel it this moment, even as I'm speaking, you might actually suspect that I'm drunk. Still, I swear to you, the moment he starts to speak, I am beside myself. My heart starts leaping in my chest. The tears come streaming down my face. Even the frenzy Corey Banties seems sane compared to me. And let me tell you, I am not alone. And then he goes on. So maybe um, this is another perspective, as you're as you were saying, James. Like maybe the uh, this dialogue gives us different perspectives, and maybe there's different like grains of truth in each of the speeches. I think it's good to have a perspective from someone who's in love and, you know, what <laughs> What better character to give this speech than someone who's in love with Socrates, you know, the subject of Plato's dialogues. And uh, I'll just, just, I think, one or two more observations. Um, I think it's also interesting that this speech, I think it, it might even be flagged as somehow, like, special or more pure in a way because it's cordoned off from the rest of the speeches. Like, the rest of the speeches were all, were all sort of, like, in almost in dialogue with each other. They were affecting each other. Like people were like commenting on other people's speeches. People were saying how other people were like their speech wasn't inadequate. And yet this one, like he just shows up randomly at the end. He sort of bursts into the room. So he actually has no idea what was just said. He isn't like trying to enter like some kind of like a cognitive or cerebral relation or, you know, or, you know, argumentative relation with other speeches. He's just like presenting what he feels about Socrates. I think it's an interesting move. Uh, I think it definitely deliberate on Plato's part. And then just l last thing uh, for now. So you were mentioning um, the art of love earlier, James, and then you describe you're re helpfully read this passage from Alcibiades. So I wonder if there's the contrast here then between, I think Alcibiades is clearly in love, but maybe he just doesn't have the art of love yet. <laughs> and being in love I think is absolutely important for Plato. I think it's very clear, you know, in his metaphysics, it's the thing that connects us to the truth. You, If you're not in love, like somehow you're just sort of, you know, being busy for nothing on, on the ground. But you also need like to work that up into an art. And Socrates seems to have done that. But maybe Alcibiades is sort of at a bit of a lower level <laughs> out of the cave. He, he definitely feels the love, which is very important. It's like what gets you started on this journey. But he hasn't like worked into art yet. So maybe there's a difference there to explore. So great points, Darren. Thank you. And uh, I like the way that you started off by saying that Alcibiades is actually in love, whereas the others are talking more abstractedly about it. But here's an actual demonstration of it. So uh, that's it's a really good point is that Plato has moved from this abstract presentation of love to a real demonstration of it, which is maybe a lot messier than what the theory would hold, right? Um, I like that. And then also you you, you pointed out uh, that the speech, you know, Alcibiades arrives, he hasn't heard the other speech. So he's not part of that dialectic exercise. The others are maybe picking up in each other, but here he arrives just this outsider with his own thoughts, not having listened to what the others said. So I think that's a, a good point. And you mentioned maybe Alcibiades is kind of in that lower level in the cave, maybe referring again to the prisoner in the cave from the Republic who escaped to see the light and the truth whereas the the others are locked in the cave and unable to see the truth. And so maybe Alcibiades is a victim of, you know, being stuck in the, the cave and not really seeing the truth. You ask whether yeah. there was art in what he said. I mean, I guess there's some, it's a question of what art is. And I think that's something that we can get at with this session, I think, is to try to understand what Socrates is saying when he, he says he understands the art of love. Is there a range in art or is art only supposed to be beautiful? Uh, I don't think Alcibiades is presenting something that's particularly beautiful here. So, 
Yeah. And if I may, just a yeah. quick uh, comment uh, regarding the cave analogy that, you know, uh, you elaborate a bit more on. So, I mean, in, in the Republic, being in the middle section is not supposed to be like a smooth and <laughs> easy ride. Like people struggle to get back in, like they get drawn up in various ways. And then like, you know, they can't believe it. Some of them want to go back. Some of them. So it's the journey towards the truth is not like a smooth, calm journey. It's like, there's a lot of struggle, emotional, uh, mental. And so I think maybe that's sort of what we're seeing. Like someone is in love in this in-between state. And, um, I liked how you like emphasized last time this idea about the neediness of love. Maybe, you know, we can probe that a bit more uh, mm -hmm. today because it's that neediness that sort of like draws us up. But then as we're going to see, like I'll see about it also really wants to go back down. So <laughs> it's a big yeah. struggle. Yeah, struggle is a good way of putting it. I, th I think there's certainly a struggle going on with Alcibiades here. And it's uh, it's really interesting. And it adds some humor, of course, to a subject that is uh, maybe not always humorous. And, and so it's it's a good way of, helping to draw us together, I think, to find some conclusions. So so thank you for that. And uh, we'll go to Lisa. Um, welcome, Lisa, your thoughts. Yes, I just wanted to bring up the uh, the contrast before between the how Socrates enters the party and how Alcibiades does. When Socrates enters, he's delayed, self-delayed. He's almost at what, in a catatonic state, thinking to himself or reflecting perhaps before he enters. And this fellow, just the opposite of that. So it's a very stark contrast, and, I, and I'm sure that's uh, that has something to say in of itself. A very good point, I think. And actually, we'll see at the end. You know, Alcibiades talks about uh, again Socrates doing this sort of standing out all night, just thinking. And yeah, I, I like the way that you you brought that contrast right to the beginning of the dialogue, where. Socrates has this very quiet contemplative entrance, whereas there's none of that with Alcibiades. Uh, that's a really good observation. I think that's something I hadn't thought about. So thank you for that. I see Adam and Andre, did you have another point that you wanted to add or? Yeah, I kind of, uh, I liked what Darren said about, uh, so it brought me to the idea of, uh, it's as if Plato just showed for Alcib Alcibiades just another stage of love, I guess, like an intermediate stage where you're more uh, consumed by the emotion and you're not self-reflecting enough yet because in a way you cannot be as if your free will is just sabotaged, you could say, in that stage. So, yeah, you could argue maybe... Um, I'm not sure if Plato wants to say that some people are more like that or maybe that's just another stage of love where maybe socrates when he was in love uh he went through this stage too and then it took him time to you know get out of the cave and uh kind of understand what is this emotion and maybe it's more than just an emotion so yeah it's just less cerebral of a stage for alcibiades now so, yeah it's it's kind of a question mm -hmm. yeah i think i think that's a great point to reflect on because certainly earlier in the dialogue I think in Diotima's speech or, or through speaking through Socrates, the idea was made that, you know, you start loving beautiful things, beautiful bodies, but then you move from that, you transition from that to loving the mind and loving the soul. And yeah, I think what you said, maybe this is a case of Alcibiades being stuck in that earlier phase, that intermediate stage, as you said, I think that's a great observation. So thank you. And uh, Adam, your thoughts. 
Uh, Lisa just made me made me think that I was I've been trying to picture this this whole time. I've read the story a couple times and just how funny it his crashing the party is and 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 how hilarious it is and how the audacity and the confidence and the swagger and just he's an incredible character. And Lisa making that comment, it made me think of um, the actor in uh, Wedding Crashers. He was also in Swingers. Uh, he's a tall. Ah, shoot. What's his name? You guys know who I'm talking about? Have you seen this movie? No? Vince Vaughn. Do you know this actor? Nope, must not. <laughs> yeah, uh, anyway. yeah, I, I recognize him, man. Yeah, just highly charismatic, takes up a room, uh, the life of the party. And so thank you, Lisa, for helping me uh, kind of put a face to this to this character. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's always good to uh, be able to relate these characters to real characters in in life. I think that that's the uh, an interesting point about this, and I think we can always we can all relate to the other characters as well. I think some of their approach and what they said, I think we've heard said elsewhere too. And I think uh, that's an important thing too with Plato is that he's always trying to present an array of different perspectives. And certainly, I think in this one, those differences in perspectives are are pretty important. So. So thanks for that. And uh, Darren. What uh, Adam just said is, um, I think um, might be interesting in just the larger context of Alcibiades' uh, life as we know it, because he was a very charismatic character and he'll use that charisma to sort of very <laughs> bad ends, the real Alcibiades in real life. So um, yeah, that's interesting. And it's probably only because of the charisma, which we see sort of in a different light in this dialogue. But, you know, he's going to turn out to be a much darker character, the real Alcibiades, which all the all the readers of Plato at the time would know about. He ends up being a kind of evil character. So I wa actually wanted to get back to Andre's, uh, what Andre said about the stages of love, because I think they're in what we uh, hear from Alcibiades later. That's also the stages of philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> like they're actually kind of the same thing because I mean we we already sort of know this right because of what you know what we we read about the ladder of love that takes us to you know the good and truth from you know earlier in this dialogue uh, but also you know in 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 other dialogues about love where it's the process of falling in love that sort of whether it's with another person or whether with it's some like something in the world, like an art or a practice or whatever, it could be anything really. It doesn't have to be another person. Like we saw in the Phaedrus, like that is when you start seeing glimpses of beauty, truth, or goodness in the world, either in other people or things, then that's where your journey to philosophy begins. Like you want the more pure, like you keep trying to find the more pure and pure form of it. Um, so the stages of love are the stages of philosophy. Like they're very close connection for Plato. Like this is the metaphysics. Like philosophy is not detached from love. The word philosophy is love of wisdom. So, and so I just want to read, um, encapsulates this a two one eight. I hope I'm not getting too far ahead, James. <laughs> um, nope. I think that like it's just one line here. I think it just like it it just ties in love and philosophy. So I think I know the line you're going for here. I'm yeah, he talks about the snake bite. So yeah. I, I'm going to read this. So furthermore. This is just at 218A. Uh, furthermore, you know what people say about snakebite, that you only talk about it with your fellow victims. Only they will understand the pain and forgive you all, for all the things it made you do. Well, something much more painful than a snake has bitten me in my most sensitive part. I mean my heart or my soul or whatever you want to call it, which has been struck and bitten by philosophy. 
whose grip on young and eager souls is much more vicious than the vipers and makes them do the most amazing things. Now, all you people here, Phaedrus, Agathon, Eryximachus, Pausanias, Aristodemus, Aristophanes, I need not mention Socrates himself, and all the rest, have all shared in the madness, the backic frenzy of philosophy. Okay, so I've never heard of, I don't think I hear philosophy anywhere else described as a backic frenzy, but apparently <laughs> that's what philosophy is supposed to look like. And maybe that's kind of surprising for people who think philosophy is just like very like cold and <laughs> cerebral, but like someone who really genuinely has this love of wisdom, like there's a stage at which you might, this, it looks like a, a back kick frenzy. And so, yeah, I just want to make, just make that connection and just like, maybe like push even more, like how emotional philosophy can be like, and he's describing, and he says like, it's not just him. He says, we have all, like all the people in the room who just gave these speeches, we've all shared in this back kick frenzy. <laughs> True, although he hasn't been in the room to see those, to hear those speeches. So uh, how does he know what kind of frenzy preceded him, I guess? Yeah, uh, but, like I, I'm, I'm yeah. guessing he knows this from like, like yeah. other contexts that all these characters we've all shared in this madness. He says, yeah. yeah. That's a great connection. And I think he's, he's driven by the drink into this sort of frenzy maybe that and, and again it would be interesting to see what the real Alcibiades without drink would do whether there'd be any sort of bacchic frenzy or not but uh he does seem to recognize some power of philosophy and as you rightly recalled love isn't just love of a person but uh it could be love of of wisdom which is philosophy itself so there's many there's different types of love i guess is is uh, what that's trying to say so so thanks for those observations i think those are really helpful and Andre, your thoughts? Yeah, I really like what uh, Darren said. Uh, it made me uh, think uh, maybe the Bacchic frenzy of philosophy is kind of um, maybe not necessarily like uh, uh, emotional, like overwhelming by being overwhelmed by emotion, but maybe it's uh, it's just a, a endless sense of wonder, which you could compare with maybe when some older couples that have been together for like years. You usually hear the same thing where, oh, our love has sort of developed. Like it's different than what it was years ago. Like I, I understand my partner differently, or we have, we have gone through stuff. And in the same way with philosophy, if you're at, at first, I just remember years ago when I just heard of philosophy and when I had that like introductory course in the college, uh, how I was just obsessed with everything with all the questions and it was overwhelming because i did not know you could ask such questions about life and go in so many uh, directions and just analyzing and in, in such depth just regular stuff that kind of children ask when they're kids so yeah maybe that, that's a good comparison by by uh, darren it's it's it is a love of philosophy as well Mm -hmm. At least for some people, it's it's like a, a life. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's a life uh, project in a way. It never ends. Mm -hmm. So maybe sometimes love, it never really ends. It just transforms, changes. Yeah. That's great. I, I really like the way you said it. Love never ends. And then you also said that the Bacchic frenzy is like an endless sense of wonder and never ending and endless make me think of timelessness, which then makes me think of immortality in a sense. And, and maybe that's what Diodema is trying to 
uh, call to attention, uh, or at least Socrates relaying Diotima's word is, words is trying to call into attention here is this sort of timeless nature of love that, you know, we are um, these, these time-bound beings, you know, our bodies only last so many years and we only have a limited amount of time to do things in, but maybe we're trying to reach up to that higher plane where there is no limit um, and we reach this kind of sense of endlessness and maybe Alcibiades, maybe maybe not known to himself, like he doesn't, he wouldn't acknowledge this himself, but we can see this in Alcibiades that he's maybe reached this sense of wonder because he's really, he's taken out of his normal political self, his maneuvering self, the, the, the self that got Athens into trouble and all of this. And he's just being human without all of this, you know, political adornment around him. And so maybe this is a, an interesting thing that we're exploring the timeless nature of Alcibiades, even though he doesn't know it. Uh, and he's certainly going to tell us about the timeless nature of Socrates, which is, I think, very interesting in this part. So, so thank, th those, those are all great observations. Um, I thought maybe I would read this other part here and, and I've titled this shame among lovers because the, the topic of shame comes up here several times and it's something that we might explore it was touched upon earlier in the dialogue as uh you know lovers are constrained in the things that they do by the shame that they feel in their action they don't want to look shameful in the in the eyes of their lover and so anyway i just i thought i'd pick out this section here and maybe we can see where we want to go with this this is from 216b to 217b and again this is uh alcibiades speaking Socrates is the only man in the world who has made me feel shame. Ah, uh, you didn't think I had it in me, did you? Yes, he makes me feel ashamed. I know perfectly well that I can't prove he's wrong when he tells me what I should do. Yet, the moment I leave his side, I go back to my old ways. I cave in to my desire to please the crowd. My whole life has become one constant effort to escape from him and keep away. But when I see him, I feel deeply ashamed because I'm doing nothing about my way of life, though I have already agreed with him that I should. Sometimes, believe me, I think I would be happier if he were dead. And yet I know that if he dies, I'll be even more miserable. I can't live with him and I can't live without him. What can I do about him? That's the effect of his satyr's music on me and many others. But that's the least of it. He's like those creatures in all sorts of other ways. His powers are really extraordinary. Let me tell you about them because you can be sure of it. None of you really understands him. But now I've started, I'm going to show you what he really is. And I'll just break here because in the next paragraph, he talks about the statues of Silenus or mentions Silenus. And so this is important because this motif of Silenus comes up several times in this ending section. It also came up earlier in the dialogue. So I just got a little description of Silenus from the internet, which knows everything. Uh, Silenus was described as the oldest, wisest, and most drunken of the followers of Dionysus and was said in Orphic hymns to be the young God's tutor. While intoxicated, Silenus was said to possess special knowledge in the power of prophecy. So that's according to the internet. And then we'll just recall earlier in the symposium at 215b, the statues of Silenus are described in this line. It says, you know the kind of statue I mean. You'll find them at any shop in town. It's a Silenus sitting, his flute or his pipes in his hands, and it's hollow. It's split right down the middle, and inside it's full of tiny statues of the gods. So I think when I'm reading Silenus in this part and then in the subsequent parts, 
I'm thinking about that flute that has those images of the gods, but it's a divided flute. And then that makes me think of what uh, Diotima said about the spirit of love. And she said, spirit is that which is between mortal and immortal. The, the gods aren't able to communicate directly with mortals. They communicate through spirits. And so Diotima said, love is, a, love is a spirit, this kind of intermediary being. So I just broke there just because, the, you know, the he talks about Silenus several times. So I'll just go back to the, the next paragraph. So he says, to begin with, he's crazy about beautiful boys. He constantly follows them around in a perpetual daze. And he likes to say he's ignorant and knows nothing. Isn't this just like Silenus? Of course it is. And all this is just on the surface, like the outsides of those statues of Silenus. I wonder, my fellow drinkers, if you have any idea what a sober and temperate man he proves to be once you have looked inside. Believe me, it couldn't matter less to him whether a boy is beautiful. You can't imagine how little he cares whether a person is beautiful or rich or famous in any other way that most people admire. He considers all these possessions beneath contempt, and that's exactly how he considers all of us as well. In public, I tell you, his whole life is one big game, a game of irony. I didn't know if any of you have seen him when he's really serious, but I once caught him when he was open like Silenus's statues, and I had a glimpse of the figures he keeps hidden within. They were so godlike, so bright and beautiful, so utterly amazing, that I no longer had a choice. I just had to do whatever he told me. What I thought at the time was that what he really wanted was me. And that seemed to me the luckiest coincidence. All I had to do was let him have his, his way with me, and he would teach me everything he knew. Believe me, I had a lot of confidence in my looks. Naturally, up to that time, we'd never been alone together. One of my attendants had always been present. But with this in mind, I sent the attendant away and met Socrates alone. You see, in this company, I must tell the whole truth, so pay attention. And Socrates, if I say anything untrue, I want you to correct me. So that followed the previous section and a number of ideas in there. Again, the, the idea of Silenus and that, that comparison to Silenus and this kind of being bewitched by Socrates the images he saw in Socrates were so godlike, so bright and beautiful, so utterly amazing that he no longer had a choice. He just had to do whatever Socrates told him to do. And how does this square with the ideas of love that we heard before in the speeches? And does it relate to anything that Diotima said uh, about love? If the purpose of Diotima's speech was maybe to draw some of the previous stuff together, um, what do we see in this one? Lisa, your thoughts. Yeah, it reminded me of uh, Phaedrus, right? Who thought that shame would give you courage and courage would be um, one of the benefits of, of, of love. It doesn't seem to have given him much courage, though, has it? Yeah, yeah, yeah good point. It's um, maybe Alcibiades' courage is coming partially from the alcohol as well as the shame, but certainly, and maybe it's an interesting thing to somebody in Alcibiades' position uh, which, as Darren said, everybody would have known at that time who Alcibiades was and what his role was in Athens, that maybe uh, people in his position should know shame more than they actually do. If Alcibiades was going around and commanding armies and creating problems for Athens, uh, maybe he wasn't quite thinking about the shame that he should have felt for some of his deeds that maybe weren't driven as much by careful thought, more by... Uh, maybe some false sense of courage or something. So I don't know, maybe there's some connection there to Alcibiades' uh, actual history. So thanks for that connection. And uh, Darren, your thoughts? 
Yeah, so this uh section you just read might be like some of the densest packages or passages um I've read in Plato, just in terms of like how stimulating it is and how much is like like significant that he was packed in here. First, uh just a few observations, uh, but what was said earlier. So I think it's interesting that um Alcibiades here says that. Uh, if he says anything that's untrue, like Socrates should just interrupt him and correct him. Like he, this actually comes up like a couple of times at least. And Socrates doesn't really. So I think there's might be, again, I think this might be, I guess, kind of special speech in a way. Um, it's not like about love in the abstract, but it's like an exhibition of someone who's actually in love at a certain stage of it, at least. So I think that might be something to keep in mind, maybe. Um, I also, I think it's really interesting that Socrates is compared with this, statue uh what is it or selenus who is yeah dionysius's companion i i just find this this just might be a little like footnote but uh it's interesting because it's very contrary to nietzsche's interpretation of plato and socrates because (laughs) he identifies socrates with the apollonian forces which are more rational but here plato explicitly identifies in a very extended metaphor that runs throughout this last section, uh, Socrates with a di- with a companion of Dionysius. And if you read about Selenus, yeah, he he is the one who like gets people into Bacchic frenzy. <laughs> He's basically uh, with his music and you know his. Uh, so it's I, I think I mean I think it's just maybe that's just an interesting footnote. Whoever is comprehends Plato and Socrates to Nietzsche aren't getting the full story here. <laughs> like Nietzsche doesn't seem to get it right, or at least at least it's different from Plato's reading of what Socrates is all about. So I'll just throw that out there. Um, I mean, I, I often do encounter people's like discussing Plato, but they're not really discussing Plato. They're discussing Nietzsche's views on Plato. <laughs> you have to actually read Plato to discuss Plato. Um, and then I'm, I'll just make this one little observation for now. Uh, I'm sure more, more will come up later. But um, I, I think this passage you just read is very telling. And it shows like what I, I was sort of mentioned earlier about how he's sort of in an intermediate stage of coming out of the cave. I mean, what actually reminded me of the cave analogy was uh, what he actually said here, where he says, the moment I leave his side, or Socrates' side, I go back to my old ways. I cave into my desires to please the crowd. <laughs> so I know, I mean, I, I don't even know if the original Greek was actually cave, but like, <laughs> so when I read cave in, okay, okay, it was like, this is like immediately brought up the analogy of the cave. I have to look back to the original Greek to see, see if, if it actually says cave. But regardless, I mean, the the, the connection is quite clear, I think. Because um, he does say, I think this comes out at one point where he says that he actually says nothing is more important to me than becoming the best man I can be because he's learned about Socrates. But at the same time, he says on in, in, in this section, I think this was a little bit above what you just read. He, he was uh, saying how Socrates makes him feel his political career is a waste of time <laughs> and um, it makes him feel like his way of life is totally worthless and he doesn't know what to do with himself now. So he has this desire to become the best man he can be, but he wants to be like this great politician, which he's already set out uh, on the path towards. So he's sort of torn, right? And so he is sort of in the middle of the cave. And when someone's in the middle of the cave, as we see, as we know from the Republic, there's no guarantee they keep going up, right? Like not only do they want to go back in, they drag other people back in too, because, you know, maybe they're used to it. They have desires for certain things down there. Um, yeah, so it's interesting that, he describes him being drawn to Socrates and wanting Socrates to help him be the best man he can be. But then at the same time, he's saying here, he refuses to listen to him. And he he actually says his whole life is an effort to escape from Socrates. 
uh, and to get away from him. And, and and what I find so amusing about this is that, you know, as we saw earlier, he also describes Socrates as saying, oh, you just randomly pop up in places all the time. <laughs> so Socrates is a figure he's always trying to escape from, but also just seems to randomly show up in his life all the time. So I just think that this whole, whole section is just also very amusing, as someone else also mentioned. It is. It is incredibly amusing. And you point out that, you know, Socrates is this character who always seems rational and tries to get people to behave rationally, I guess, or we we think that he's trying to get people to behave rationally, but we see this kind of irrational approach from Alcibiades, but maybe there's some truth in this irrational approach. So maybe that's why Plato put it here. I, there's a lot of, it'd be really interesting to understand all of the dramatic purpose behind this, but you know, you, you called into attention you know, Alcibiades, tendency to cave to the crowd, to please the crowd, because he was a politician. And so maybe in that sort of circumstance, um, having shame for the lover is something that constrains him from those urges to to please the crowd, to, to cave in uh, to his desire to please the crowd. And so maybe love serves a purpose in his case to uh, to constrain that. So interesting observation there. So thanks for that. And we'll go to Adam and then Andre. When, when I read this passage, I couldn't help but think of um, the, the similarity between Socrates and Jesus when Jesus was approached by the man, the rich man who had it all. And Jesus was basically like, yeah, you know, good on you to having it all. How about you go give that up and worry about saving your soul? You're, you're wasting your time with all that other stuff. Then and that man was dejected, you know. He walked away just like Alcibiades is dejected by the message that he's being told that uh, you need to give attention to yourself. You need to live the examined life. You need to um, be introspective. And so the the parallel to me is uh, is pretty 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 strong. Uh, Alcibiades has it all, um, but but he knows Socrates is right. Do you have your soul? Well, wow, that's that's a powerful comparison, actually. And uh, maybe Alcibiades, maybe part of this drunkenness is this covering that Alcibiades has in his soul. And it's this this display of this outward presentation, but not actually what's inside him. And yeah, a good, good point about whether Alcibiades is living the examined life. Maybe this is part of why this character kind of bursts into the scene and makes a real change in the tone of the whole discussion. Maybe it's that kind of forced examination through a very different perspective. Uh, really interesting point there. So thank you. And Andre. It's actually a good point, James, about uh, just made me think the, the theory that maybe Alcibiades says drunkness, quote unquote, maybe he's not that drunk. Maybe he's just using that as just covering up his real desire which kind of scares him or maybe he wants to avoid it uh, i don't know I, i'm just analyzing people i've knew i've known throughout my life or even me in the past uh, i definitely went through stages like that where you try to justify oh i'm just i guess it's just a drunkness but i actually wanted to say yeah uh, there's something else you said james earlier and don't remember exactly, but it reminded me, ironically, uh, Darren, ironically, uh, Nietzsche quote, there is always some madness in love, but there is always some reason and madness. Yeah, just kind of funny that Nietzsche said that, considering he was uh, quite anti-Plato. Yeah. 
and I guess Nietzsche suffered a little bit of madness to it at some point in his life. Um, yeah, that's a really good quote, Madness and Love, but Reason and Madness. And and maybe that ties to what uh, Diotima said that we heard in the previous session, that love is this kind of intermediary that is not perfection in itself, but it's this kind of point where we can find a path to perfection. Um, so it's not going to get us out of the madness, but it's going to point to a path that leads out of this, you know, if you call it madness or obsession or just doing things without thinking of them, uh, maybe leads us to a more timeless state where we are not just acting, reacting to the moment as Alcibiades seems to be doing. He just fills his cup with more drink and keeps talking. And maybe he's demonstrating some sort of sense in his display for Socrates that there is something greater that he's searching for. I really like that. Thanks. And Darren. Yeah, I just want to say a bit more about this uh, Nietzsche connection and the relation between madness and reason. Isn't Nietzsche of the view that there has to be some combination of the Dionysus and Apollonian forces, Dionysian and Apollonian forces? Yeah, okay, I see Andre nodding. Okay, um, we shouldn't have one, you know, exclusive of the other. And I wonder if that combination can look at different ways. And I'm quite sure that Plato is trying to show or exact some kind of... Um, reconciliation between these two forces. And I think it is in Socrates. And Socrates, I think, presents a pr pretty compelling picture of how these two can combine. And just before I elaborate a bit on that, I, I just remember, like, at the very end of this dialogue, Socrates described as trying, like, everyone's falling asleep, but Socrates is still talking. And he's trying to convince everyone that, you know, a great playwright has to be able to, uh, has to excel in both tragedy and comedy. You can't have just one or the other. So again, Socrates is a figure who like is seen as kind of this um, maybe a kind of reconciliation between like opposing forces in life. Yeah. So regarding uh, what James said earlier about how, yeah, Socrates does seem to want to get people to think rationally. So there's, there's the like reason side. But like to me, what's the significant part is the getting people to <laughs> the getting people to is a kind of, I think, a desire. And we see this and that's. I, I mean, we've discussed this before. So like in, in, in this group where um, in, the, in a lot of the drama, like we see Socrates trying to like, you know, get different people with their different quirks and personalities. You try to get interested in philosophy. Like we, we just read Protagoras where he seemed to try to get Protagoras to actually be interested in philosophy. So the, the getting to is, a, is like a non-rational basis of be, becoming driven by reason. Another aspect, I think, of the non-rational this non-rational aspect is that like reason has to have a direction, right? Like reason can be at the service of what the sophists use it for, just our like purely self-interest, you know, our own pleasure, our own happiness, and not about, you know, larger things. You, you can use reason for that too. You can be very rational doing that. That's what the sophists are really good at. And they make money doing that. But part of the this non-rational desire aspect is like orienting our reason to the right things. And I think that is described as kind of drive. We already saw it earlier in a symposium. Like it, it's a kind of desire towards, well, you know, the, 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 the forms that are always talked about, like goodness, truth, and beauty. And that's just a kind of orientation of the human being that's um, non-rational. And I think part of the use of the drama that Plato's used drama is that he, he actually understands fundamentally how important this is. Um, that it, it's about turning people towards this. And that's that's also why these dialogues end in aporia. It's to get us, the reader, not just the characters in these dialogues, but to get us, you know, us 
a reader of the dialogues to be interested. Oh yeah, you get really puzzled by the end. Like, oh, what is what is the definition of friendship? Like all these good definitions they seem to explore don't really seem to work. So, you know, you keep thinking and you want to read more philosophy. That's a kind of desire. And I think that's the important part. So I think that's like some of the ways in which the maybe the the opposing non-rational and rational forces are sort of brought together in, in the figure of Socrates. Hmm. That really made me think I, that when you started by talking about the reconciliation of tragedy and comedy, maybe Alcibiades is a bit of a representation of both. I mean, certainly representation of comedy, but in a sense, maybe to the extent that he's pained and stricken by love and a slave to love, maybe there's some tragedy that is presented there and maybe tragedy in that he's not capable of fully examining his own life. But maybe that's, again, to use that, uh, what was said before. I like that. It really makes me think. And then the powerful point that you made about you can't always take a rational approach because people aren't always going to accept that. And everybody has a different perspective. So what's rational to one person might not be rational to another person. And so maybe getting people to think about immortality or to look for immortality, or maybe Darren, as you said last time, maybe it's not immortality as much as it is looking for the good or the good and the true and the beautiful, maybe to get people to do that requires some irrationality and a whole bunch of different perspectives and you throw it all out there and see what sticks and maybe each person finds their own path through whatever they identify with. I really like that. Maybe that's a real key to this whole dialogue is um, in presenting a total now of seven speeches. Maybe there's something in each or there's one thing in each one of those seven speeches that is going to connect with some of the readers. And and in our own dialectic, which is what we're doing here, we're putting it all together. You know, each one of us is taking it from a different perspective and bringing some new knowledge of what's behind these characters and what they're saying. And uh, that's really interesting. We're putting it together. It may be somewhat in a rational fashion, but uh, maybe that's the whole point of this. So yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. Very good. Can, yeah. can I just make a quick comment what yeah. you just said? Yeah, so earlier in this dialogue, he does say like everyone's pregnant with something, <laughs> uh, whether in body or soul. And in the Phaedrus, like people are described as falling in love with different things, which starts them on the journey. So it's a very like it, there, there's room for everyone here. <laughs> it's not like it's not like some people have, you know, uh, love and other people like, you know, yeah. th th their things don't count as love, what they what they like in life. I, I just want to come on this uh, tragedy thing that uh, at the very end, I don't know if it'll come up again because it's sort of a little side point here. But so I, I like how you mentioned like outside Biades, um maybe represents this combination of tragedy and comedy and like we see him sort of caught in between. But I, I actually think like insofar as Socrates like thought this um, and tried to convince people of this. I wonder if this whole dialogue itself is Plato's attempt at reconciling both these things that Socrates thinks are important and that you, you have to have both of them, both the tragic and the comic. I mean, this dialogue is very comic, but I think... As um as I was reading it, I also just always felt an ominous sense because, well, at least in this last part of the dialogue, but just because we know Alcibiades turns out to be a sort of evil character, he's a very snake-like character. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of comedy going on, and we the characters are even described as like you know laughing and stuff like that at his speech. But it's also ominous because as a reader, you know sort of what Alcibiades becomes. So many of the things he says, like he wishes Socrates were dead. I mean, it's funny in the local context of the dialogue, but it's also ominous in the broader context of what he becomes and what actually happened to Socrates. So, good point. Um, good point. yeah, I feel like this dialogue might be itself 
Plato's own attempt at taking Socrates' uh, counsel of combining tragic and comic. And this is the, like sort of proper representation of, you know, what life is about. You can't just have one or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. And, and we heard, you know, before in, in Plato's other dialogues that it, life is not just about pure rationality, that there has to be some fun in it too, you know. So otherwise, it, it's not necessarily worth living if it's just purely logic. So, yeah, thank you for that. And Steve, your thoughts? I think that uh, Plato is is taking using this uh, farce as a um, a meta look at the philosophy in in general. So, like any good farce, there's a lot of comic scenes, double double entendres, sexual in, innuendos, like uh, with the snake bite. It's like yeah, I was bitten in the uh, the heart, the soul, or the whatever. And uh, so I think he's showing the connections here between drunkenness, love, philosophy, uh, the desire for people to be connected to the ultimate or to oneness or to God. Uh, all of these are could be all based similarly on, you know, uh, cognitive bias or species bias, you know, or it could be called instincts, you know, like all the love and talk of love of philosophy or love of people the love of, uh, you know, it could be all a, a smokescreen for what's our actual chemical, physiological, uh, you know, drive to, you know, reproduce. And so that same he's showing here how you, you know, the drunkenness can be the same sort of uh, a way to avoid fear of death or fear of uh, loneliness or fear of isolation, you know, the need to for intoxication to counter our knowledge that you know we have an impending doom and try to forget about it and you know ink drink and be married for tomorrow we die and the same thing with the love of philosophy you know we're making it all this high sounding you know we're reaching the heights of understanding and it's it's uh you know we're we're connecting to the ultimate and to infinity by you know hooking into this and that could just be a, another version of this species or cognitive bias that, uh, you know, we're just doing this as a way to placate our impending uh, doom. Well said. Yeah, I like that, the meta look at philosophy in general. And what you said about kind of the chemical reactions made me think of what Andre said at the outset in terms of, you know, whether love is a chemical reaction or is it something greater than that? And maybe that's part of this balance that Andre was talking about at the beginning is we're looking for that balance, but sometimes it's hard to do knowing that we have a limited time to do it. So uh, it looks like Alcibiades is taking full advantage of the fun parts of his, maybe what he thinks are the fun parts of his limited time in existence. Uh, maybe he's trying to escape the pressures of his political office. You know, there, there could be a number of motivations there, but I think that's yeah, really well said. I like that. Darren. Yeah, what Steve just said is, uh, really interesting uh, take on this. And um, and I think it ties in with what Adam was said earlier, actually, about uh, <laughs> Socrates sounding like a uh, Jesus figure. So Steve was saying how maybe maybe there's something here about, you know, the human, uh, maybe it's a bias or he, he says, or uh, some kind of desire, maybe irrational or not, that's a different debate, to connect with like eternal and ultimate things maybe ultimately it's all just like biological, right? It's all just chemicals as um, uh, Andre was saying earlier. 
But I think there is a way in which I do feel like there is something like religion <laughs> to what to what philosophy looks like for Plato. And so Socrates is almost like a religious figure. So I think there there is that. So maybe people who think that you know this desire for the eternal or the ultimate, like all this stuff, like the forms, the eternal form of the good, not forms. Like no one cares about form of mud. Like it's it's the form of the good <laughs> that is the important one for Plato. Yeah, maybe that this is all just like sort of um, cognitive distortions. But I don't think that's what Plato thinks. And I maybe you know you can be dissatisfied with Plato for this reason. But I I do feel like Socrates is a kind of um, religious figure and philosophy kind of an alternate religion with Socrates being like the founding father. So Adam was talking about earlier how like Jesus like is often described as having this sort of ethical influence on people and creates this kind of internal struggle with people. And uh, Socrates is um, depicted as doing that for Alcibiades here. But um, as in the other parts of this, um, the reading this week, but also in the dialogue in general, like Socrates is presented as a very weird person like it's almost like supernatural he doesn't need to sleep he doesn't get drunk he just stands there for like entire day just in one spot thinking he's a he's kind of a he's kind of like a weird you know figure kind of almost like 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 jesus was weird or many like uh founders of religions were weird like socrates is weird <laughs> let's just admit that um, <laughs> and he's very virtuous but also very weird um and i don't think any of us could be be like that i mean if, if you can like you know, debate philosophy all night and then not sleep the next day and be perfectly fine. I mean, then I guess maybe you might be able to become a Socrates. He's also described as like people fall in love with Socrates, like all these people, like he has a huge sort of emotional influence. That's religious too. And I'll just finish this one last thing uh, in a sense in which like, it, this seems like a, almost like a kind of religion, although it has connections with rationality too, which I think is why, like, I think it's, it's a very compelling synthesis. And this other part of religion is that it also has something to do with faith as well. And it seems like for uh, Socrates and Plato, doing philosophy requires a kind of faith because you actually don't know <laughs> that the form of the good or whatever exists. We never grasp it entirely. It's something we head towards and have to keep trying to discover. And also regarding faith, it's also possible to lose faith with it. Just like in many other, like, I mean, Christianity, we see people this happened to people and this is going to happen with Alcibiades all readers of this dialogue in ancient Greek times would know this that Alcibiades kind of loses faith and that he chooses to go back into the cave and becomes like basically betrays Athens I think there's a lot that's like very religious like here so people who are noticing that I think it's definitely there but also this leads to the question of whether you accept it or not and that's a I think that's something that Steve raises <laughs> whether you want to accept it this kind of like package this religious package yeah, and, and good observations there, especially again with reference to the statues of Silenus. And if uh, Silenus had this flute in his hands and half of the flute was filled with these statues of gods and the other half kind of represents the mortal, maybe Socrates is being compared to this kind of spirit, you know, the, the type that Diotima talked about that intermediates the mortal and the immortal. Maybe Socrates serves this purpose of he's not a god himself, but he's kind of leading or showing people lighting the path maybe towards more of this godlike state. You know, what you said about the good makes me think of the definition of the form of the good from the Republic. The form of the good is that which gives truth to the things known and the power to know to the knower. And maybe that's, again, what Socrates is serving here. So that's um, a yeah, really good point. 
So thanks for that. And uh, we'll go to uh, Steve and Andre, and then I'll, I'll have a section, the next section, actually, just um, Darren, when you spoke about that warning, there's a bit of a warning to Alcibiades from Socrates in the next section. So I'll, I'll read that uh, after, but we'll go to Steve and then Andre. Yeah, with the, the characterization of Socrates as a religious founder, uh, I can definitely see that. But the uh, the only point I would make is is uh, when Darren's saying that you know all these religious uh, founders are weird or have strange occurrences happening around them. It's not necessarily that these things are happening, but that myths grow around religious founders. If you're a founder of a religion then you're held to, you know, uh, there's all sorts of mythological, you know, characteristics that your uh, devotees over the years attest to you, like, you know, virgin birth, uh, Moses being, you know, you know, saved in the uh, swamp, Romulus and Remus uh, being nursed by the wolves. There's, you know, I mean, it's one one after the other and, and the characteristics, you know, like they talk about Socrates here, he, doesn't need a, a coach in the winter. He does. He can go barefoot. Never gets drunk. He's the strongest man on the battlefield. It's it's all you know. And that's and Socrates is is held to be like a, like Karen said, the founder of you know European philosophy. And uh, he also was a, a contemporary of Buddha. You know, generally speaking, you know, we're we don't have datings that well on on Buddha as we do on Socrates because of, uh, you know, the historical connection to Alexander, you know, through his student of a student. And uh, so, you know, we have a pretty good idea of his time frame, but the Buddha is a little more open. But, you know, in generally speaking, it's there was this similar sort of uh, movements in uh, India in, in the philosophical, theological bent as uh, as was happening here. And, you know, there's all sorts of stories around the Buddha also, you know, about him. He just sat and meditated, uh, and he decided to just sit in, in the spot that he was in and meditate until he was enlightened. So, you know, that's, that's the, the only point I raised different from what uh, Darren was saying, that it's not that, you know, these religious figures are necessarily special. It's that because they, you know, the circumstances are that they were a founder in that the, you know, the devotees create myths or or, or overemphasize uh, stories in order to, you know, aggrandize the person because they are the founder. Hmm. Really interesting connection you made there with the Buddha and that propensity to just sit and meditate as Socrates does at the beginning of, of the dialogue, he arrives and he stands on the neighbor's porch and he's just meditating. Everybody else is inside having fun talking and he's just outside. And then we find Socrates at the same stage at the end of the dialogue. That's a really interesting connection. I hadn't thought about that before. And certainly the myths appear throughout the dialogue. There's, you know, they talk about Achilles, they talk about Theseus. And I think Eric pointed out last time, you know, the stories behind these myths, I think are are good to understand the context of the dialogue and what are they trying to say with these myths? Maybe it is kind of, as you alluded, I think understanding by way of analogy. So it's not really meant to be taken seriously necessarily, but there's analogies in there that we are meant to understand. And maybe these constant sort of memes through time that just kind of display something about human nature. So 
So thank you for that. Uh, Darren and then Andre. Yeah, I guess I just want to respond to Steve. I, I definitely think there's probably some of that going on, like what Steve described about the myth-making around Socrates. So I, I'm not I'm not questioning you know, uh, that point. Although I, I think there's definitely some of that, but I think, again, I don't, I've never met Socrates. I don't know what he was really like, but I think um, we should also like keep in mind that there's a lot of like, cross-textual corroboration of who this character Socrates and all, and all the other characters are. And like Thucydides is going to discuss a lot of these characters like Alcibiades and, you know, Alcibiades' relationship with uh, Socrates is famous. And actually, in fact, if you so if you if you read the apology, I, I think it comes up like Alcibiades comes. Well, at, at least it's understood that part of the charge against Socrates of corrupting the youth was because of how Alcibiades actually ended up like turning into what he ended up turning into. All, like there's so many intertextual connections. So if there's myth making actually, um, so I, I can't like, again, I don't actually, I've never met him, so I don't know, but and I wasn't there. But if there was myth making, it might actually be already there in, in the, it's already present in the Greek culture. Like even as Socrates was alive, like he was, I think he almost definitely must have shown like super extraordinary, like almost like superhuman traits. I think he must have had that. And maybe there was even, and then, you know, because people sort of admired him and like he clearly drew a lot of people around him. He was, there was like Sophist and then there was Socrates. It was like the two, two battling forces. And um, so maybe like already in the culture at this time, like there was all this myth-making and I think Plato just might be like just taking up some of that. It's it, it just that there's so many like intertextual things you can see like between Plato's own dialogues, there's a lot of consistency and also between Plato and other writers of these actual real people. It's helpful that, you know, they had a lot of writing in this culture. So that's good. Um, and um, there, there's one way in which he's not maybe like superhuman or, or, or above human in a way is that apparently he, he was extremely ugly. So, okay, so he's not perfect. He was extremely ugly. <laughs> and, uh, and I actually noticed like, so the statues um, that he's being described to, to that uh, satyr. Wait, I forgot the name. Selenus or? Selenus, yeah. Selenus, right. Selenus. Um, yeah, so I was just looking up Salinas right before the meeting, and I uh, I noticed that the statues of Salinas, the face of Salinas, looks very much like our portrayals of Socrates. So uh, you know, not he's ugly, basically. <laughs> and and maybe part of the implausibility of uh, Alcibiades' love here is you know he's totally spitten by this character who scarcely puts on Socrates at the beginning, put on new sandals for a change. He actually washed before he attended this event. So maybe there's some uh, interesting play there with, uh, with Socrates look and this, this idea again, that um, love leaves behind at a certain point, the physical beauty and then moves on to the beauty of the soul. So I think that's uh, an interesting point. Andre, did you want to make a, a point? Yeah, for, from an earlier thing that Steve said about uh, the impending doom, it kind of made me uh, reflect on what Alcibiades is as a character in this uh, dialogue. Maybe he's just an example that Plato brought to show how a man can um, use love as a distraction or rather compound love with lust. Uh, basically distraction from the office he has right the politics uh, just the way some people do nowadays right from just to distract yourself from the work maybe you hate you just go on binge parties or some stuff like that just uh, like a, a hedonist uh, you know yeah a hedonist sort of uh, 
phase, I guess. Uh, and maybe it also raises the question. Um, yeah, maybe Plato puts the question implicitly in this that uh, to actually attain love, you should have the right reasons to search for it. It's like the example of sophists. Uh, on paper, they kind of do the same thing as Socrates, you could argue, in, in some ways, but they don't have the right reasons because they just do it for, you know, for it's, it's like a job, just for the money. So, yeah, maybe Alcibiades is an example of a man that... Um, tries to get out of the cave but just cannot because he doesn't have the right reasons yeah that's that's beautiful actually i, I really like that uh, idea that alcibiades is there maybe to provide that contrast between lust and love uh and and the hedonism versus you know true love of the soul and yeah to have the right reasons to search for love i, I think that's that's brilliant so yeah, thanks for that i I wanted to read, and so there's the parts at the end, and we have about a half an hour left, but there's the parts at the end that I wanted to read about Socrates having these superhuman characteristics. And I, I wanted to see if we have some sort of understanding maybe of why Plato put in those superhuman characteristics. And it, it's plays throughout this dialogue. Uh, so I think that the purpose of that is something that we can hopefully arrive at some understanding of. But I wanted to read this bit Um this is just after the part that Darren read earlier. This is around 218B or so. Uh, this comes right after the part about the snake bite uh, that Darren read earlier and the madness and the Bacchic frenzy, frenzy of philosophy. And after that, Alcibiades, after he makes that statement about the, mad, the Bacchic frenzy of philosophy, he says, and that's why you will hear the rest of my story. You will understand and forgive both what I did then and what I say now. As for the house slaves and for anyone else who is not an, initi an initiate, my story's not for you. Block your ears. To get back to the story, the lights were out. The slaves had left. The time was right. I thought to come to my point and tell him freely what I had in mind. So I shook him and whispered, Socrates, are you asleep? No, no, not at all, he replied. You know what I've been thinking? Well, no, not really. I think, I said, you're the only worthy lover I've ever had. And yet, look at how shy you are with me. Well, here's how I will look at it. It would be really stupid not to give you anything you want. You can have me, my belongings, anything my friends might have. Nothing is more important to me than becoming the best man I can be, and no one can help me more than you to reach that aim. With a man like you, in fact, I'd be much more ashamed of what wise people would say if I did not take you as my lover than I would of what all the others in their foolishness would say if I did. He heard me out, and then he said in an absolutely inimitable, ironic manner of his, Dear Alcibiades, if you are right in what you say about me, you are already more accomplished than you think. If I really have in me the power to make you a better man, then you can see in me a beauty that is really beyond description and makes your own remarkable good looks pale in comparison. But then, is this a fair exchange that you propose? You seem to me to want more than your proper share. You offer me the merest appearance of beauty, and in return you want the thing itself, gold in exchange for bronze. Still, my dear boy, you should think twice, because you could be wrong, and I may be of no use to you. The mind's sight becomes sharp only when the body's eyes go past their prime, and you are still a good long time away from that. I really like that part there, that warning about the the eyes, the mind's sight becomes sharp only when the body's eyes go past their prime. So again, a, a warning to look past the exterior and to look what's really 
inside. And, you know, again, maybe reference to that statue of Silenus, you know, looking inside that flute where, you know, half of the flute is filled with gods uh, and the other half maybe is the path to the gods. Uh, I don't know. It's, but I just thought I wanted, I wanted to point that out because of that warning that Alcibiades acknowledges that Socrates gave him. So Alcibiades maybe here is presenting maybe a little bit of wisdom in spite of his drunken state uh, in acknowledging this. Any thoughts about that part before we get into the superhuman characteristics of Socrates, which we've already touched on? Darren. Oh, uh, well, if uh, no one else uh, has a comment, I'll just jump in, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I love that line. Uh, you know what? So Alcibiades like, you know what, what I've been thinking? They're in bed. And Socrates like, well, no, not really. <laughs> like, I always laugh when that happens because like we've had pages of like Alcibiades trying to seduce Socrates in all these ways. And Socrates is like, he has no idea what's going on. <laughs> I just find it very amusing. And I think it's also interesting where he says he nothing is more important to him than Socrates helping him become the best man he can be. But then he talks about how he'd be much more ashamed of what wise people would say if he didn't take him as a lover. So I just find it's interesting that, you know, also Biotis admits, had, has admitted already earlier that, like, he seems to be very concerned of what people think. So it's interesting that even becoming virtuous seems to be, in his mind, connected with, like, what people will think of him. So it's not like virtue for virtue's sake, like, to do something that's good for the sake of the, its goodness, but because, oh, you know, if you do that, people will think good... So it's, I just think that connects that he can't sort of excise that from his thinking is interesting. So, um, so we, we, yeah, he definitely seems to have a kind of, yeah, neediness for other people's approval or something. So that it, it just comes through in so much of what he says. Um, and then, yeah, regarding this, this warning is super interesting. Yeah. So Socrates says, my dear boy, you should think twice because you could be wrong and I may be of no use to you. So he's telling Alcibiades to like, think clearly about whether, um, how to take up Socrates's um, counsel because it might be of no use to him. So, you know, if he becomes a kind of sophist politician that he sort of be ends up becoming and he ends up, you know, switching sides a lot, he's sort of a rat like, um, you know, Socrates, like, sort of, I guess, like teachings in a way won't really help him there. So, I, I to me, what was interesting about this line actually is that. He's, he's saying to Socrates or Alcibiades, it's up to him to decide in a way of what to do. In the end, it has to be up to him. I mean, if he's just following something like, you know, like an instruction manual, like that's all, it's almost like not very virtuous in a way. Like anyone can pick up an instruction manual, <laughs> just like, you know, it has, he has to make a, there has to be a certain kind of choice in Alcibiades. He has to make decisions for his own life. So I, I sort of read this in a larger context because Alcibiades sort of featured centrally in the accusations against Socrates for corrupting the youth and that's why he was executed and so this is almost like Plato giving Socrates a say in a way it's almost like absolving Socrates in a way because we see Socrates interacting with Alcibiades as the young person here and he's saying that it's up to you <laughs> Alcibiades what you do so whatever becomes of Alcibiades can't all be put on Socrates's shoulders um not only just what we know about you know ethics people have to take responsibility for their own lives but also because socrates himself maybe said something like this or would have said something like this to people that it's your life you have to you know make a choice for yourself and what to do i can just sort of like provoke you i can just be the midwife and help you um become interested in the good but ultimately you know it's it's still also by own choice 
in a way. So I think seeing in that larger context is like interesting for me about this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and the midwife analogy, again, is something that Socrates has used before. He doesn't use it. He doesn't mention the word here, but he does seem to be fulfilling that type of role and certainly saying, keep your eyes open and look out for yourself and, you know, live the examined life, maybe as a, as Adam brought up earlier, you know, that the point of having the examined life. And so Alcibiades here is maybe showing the struggle, you know, that he he acknowledges the warning that Socrates gives, but he is having trouble living an examined life because, you know, as you pointed out, Darren, that that saying nothing is more important to me than becoming the best man I can be and no one can help me more than you to reach that aim. Is that really to self-examine or is that really to be the best politician that he can be? You know, it's we're not quite sure there. It doesn't seem that he's really too interested in any sort of immortal sort of goal. But uh, yeah, yeah, no, good, good point, good observation. Ernest, your thoughts? Well, uh, later I made very interesting uh, observation, uh, intention to bring Alcibiades uh, later at the party without hearing what was going on uh, in previous speeches. And the intent of that is he. Uh, wanted Alcibiades not to be aware of what was said before by Socrates. And in his speech, and in the, especially in the previous verses that you mentioned, previous lines, he shows contradictions to what uh, Socrates is, the difference between them, that he tries to corrupt Socrates. But Socrates follows what the Dima was, was mentioned to him. Uh, not only what proper way to behave, but that actually Socrates behaves the way that the Dima recommends. That he has self-control of himself. He never gets drunk. He never gets a desire of uh, human uh, beings. His pursuit is of knowledge and two ways that the Edema recommended to achieve immortality. So that's his purpose. And he is not only professes it, he follows that example, that his prime example of how to achieve uh, immortality. Mm. That's that's really interesting too, in, in the way that you pointed out that Alcibiades was trying to corrupt Socrates and Socrates resisted that corruption and yeah, to to control that desire and not to get led away by things that would take him away from that goal of immortality or the goal of reaching some sort of ultimate good. Uh, yeah, really, really good observation. I like that. So, yeah, and um, Darren, I just had another thought about this idea about absolving Socrates in a way from what Alcibiades has become. I just want to add a, like another sort of twist or connection to this. So earlier, uh, we read that passage, a very dense section where, I'll just read this again. So Alcibiades says, my whole life has become one constant effort to escape from him and keep away. But when I see him, I feel deeply ashamed because I'm doing nothing about my way of life, though I have already agreed with him that I would. Sometimes, believe me, I think I would be happier if he were dead. And yet I know that if he dies, I'll be even more miserable. I can't live with him and I can't live without him. What can I do about him? Uh, so I mentioned before how like there's like just very ominous things here. I mean, it's sort of hilarious within the context of what he's saying, because he's like in love with Socrates, but also like trying to get away. 
but it's also ominous in again in the larger context because what can I do about him? Well, they do end up doing something with Socrates. <laughs> uh, they actually do end up killing him. So there was that, what I said earlier about how like uh, maybe Plato was trying to absolve Socrates from responsibility for what Alcibiades becomes in a way. So Alcibiades here says his whole life is a constant effort to escape. And I feel deeply ashamed because I'm doing nothing about my way of life. So again, I wonder if you can read this in a, this itself in a more local context and a more general context. The local context of what Alcibiades clearly is saying and what his own emotions he's dealing with. But in a larger context, I wonder if this is also can be read as about an analogy for people in general, you know, people of Athens. Because he is talking about wishing Socrates were dead and what can I do about Socrates? This is a sort of a general thing, a question that Athens itself is dealing with. So I think when Alcibiades says his whole life is a constant effort to escape from Socrates and he feels deeply ashamed because of what Socrates says, because what Socrates' existence is sort of a comment on your way of life and, you know, you should feel ashamed uh, of your shortcomings. I wonder if this applies to just Athens in general. So Athens was trying to escape from Socrates mm -hmm. and sort of the kind of comment that Socrates might, just his mere existence <laughs> as a, as a as, you know, as a virtuous figure might be saying about the Athenian people and what their culture had become, how degenerate it became. Okay, sorry, sorry this, I was trying to put my thoughts together. Sorry, guys. So I feel like Plato, in a way, by writing dialogues with Socrates' voice is actually not letting Athens escape from Socrates. Like he's going to write these dialogues with Socrates' voice. Like you, you thought you escaped from Socrates? Well, I'm going to write all these dialogues. So you have to keep feeling ashamed, both because I'm going to keep reminding you that Athens, you executed Socrates. So that's one way they should feel ashamed, but also more just generally. Plato was clearly a critic. I mean, what today I think we would consider a cultural critic <laughs> of his day, of the religion of his day, of the culture of the time, of Athens. Athens was sort of already degenerating at the time. I think it's also, Plato is also keeping Socrates' voice alive, not just about the specific execution of Socrates, but also just like, I'm going to keep Socrates, like Plato clearly was a, very affected by Socrates um, and loved Socrates. I think it's quite clear too. Um, and so like his mission is to keep Socrates' voices alive, almost, you know, as a critical commentary on what Athens had become and what the people had become. So anyway, I, I, sorry, I was trying to tie those thoughts together. I, I just was thinking yeah. about it. So. That's a really, <laughs> really, really good point, actually, about that metaphor of uh, Alcibiades being maybe a stand-in for Athens itself and not being able to escape Socrates. And even to this point, yeah, I really like that metaphor. That, that's really, that's really thought-provoking, actually. So thank you for that. Um, I, I love how you were able to summarize that so succinctly, <laughs> yeah. even though it took me like five minutes <laughs> exactly. to get that out. But thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that that's really good, and, and let's let's keep that in mind as particularly as we get to the end, and at, in this part that I'll read in a minute, where Socrates is being given all of these superhuman sort of characteristics, and maybe that's the immortality of Socrates in the sense that we're talking about Socrates twenty four year twenty four hundred years later or 2,500 years later, maybe. So uh, yeah, very good, very good point, I think. And that's maybe why we're sitting here doing this today. So yeah, Ernest, your your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with them. It's a very good point that you have to understand in uh, ancient Greece at, at that time, people uh, were afraid of Socrates and his philosophy. And he was misunderstood because of Aristophanes uh, comedy uh, play uh, Clouds, where He's portrayed as uh, sitting in the clouds and calculating how far fleas are hoping uh, 
I'm doing some useless uh, things that philosophers do that has nothing to do with uh, common life mm. or for earning money or stuff like that. So mm. he was uh, considered as uh, kind of a weird person that should not be followed. Well, and that's that's a good point too, you know, and, and particularly since Aristophanes is in here, and maybe that's that commentary on, you know, the practicality versus the versus the theory of it all, and and maybe Alcibiades is all about the practicality, and the rest of them are to some degree are rather based on the theory. So, uh, yeah, really, really good point. Thank you. And there's also uh, he shows. Alcibiades against Apollodorus. Apollodorus, in the beginning of the speech, says how Socrates has changed his perception on, on life, how mm -hmm. he affected him in positive way. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. Really interesting. Well, let me just go to these parts at the end here, and we'll see, we have maybe 15 or 20 minutes left. These are kind of the real superhuman characteristics that really stand out at the end of this dialogue. So this is how the dialogue ends is with this focus on it. And so this is at uh, 219, actually around 220. I'll just skip part of this here. And um, Alcibiades is talking about uh, being in battle with Socrates at his side. <clears throat> All of this had already occurred when Athens invaded Potidaea where we served together and shared the same mess. Now, first he took the hardships of the campaign much better than I ever did, much better, in fact, than anyone in the whole army. When we were cut off from our supplies, as often happens in the field, no one else stood up to hunger as well as he did, and yet he was the one man who could really enjoy a feast. And though he didn't want much to drink, when he had to, he could drink the best of us under the table. Still, and most amazingly, no one ever saw him drunk, as we'll straightaway put to the test. Add to this his amazing resistance to cold. And let me tell you, the winter there is something awful. Once, I remember, it was frightfully cold. No one so much as stuck his nose outside. If we absolutely had to leave our tent, we wrapped ourselves in anything we could lay our hands on and tied extra pieces of felt or sheepskin over our boots. Well, Socrates went out in that weather wearing nothing but this same old light cloak, and even in bare feet he made better progress on the ice than the other soldiers did in their boots. You should have seen the looks they gave him. They thought he was only doing it to spite them. One day at dawn, he started thinking about some problem or other. He just stood outside, trying to figure it out. He couldn't resolve it, but he wouldn't give up. He simply stood there, glued to the same spot. By midday, many soldiers had seen him, and, quite mystified, they told everyone that Socrates had been standing there all day, thinking about something. He was still there when evening came, and after dinner, some Ionians moved their bedding outside, where it was cooler and more comfortable. All this took place in the summer, but mainly in order to watch if Socrates was going to stay out there all night. And so he did. He stood on the very same spot until dawn. He only left the next morning when the sun came out, and he made his prayers for the new day. So that was uh, quite superhuman. He's out there on the ice and barefoot and standing out all night. And uh, why why do they point this out? There's this other part too. Maybe I'll just read on here to the end. This is 221C to 222E. So again, this is Alcibiades talking. You could say many other marvelous things in praise of Socrates. Perhaps he shares some of his specific accomplishments with others. But as a whole, he is unique. He is like no one else in the past and no one in the present. This is by far the most amazing thing about him. For we might be able to form an idea of what Achilles was like by comparing him to Brasidas or some other great warrior. Or we might compare Pericles with Nestor or Antenor or one of the other great orators. 
There is a parallel for everyone, everyone else, that is. But this man here is so bizarre, his ways and his ideas so unusual, that search as you might, you ne you'll never find anyone else, alive or dead, who's even remotely like him. Sorry, my voice is going. The best you can do is not compare him to anything human, but to liken him as I do to Silenus and the satyrs, and the same goes for his ideas and arguments. Come to think of it, I should have mentioned this much earlier. Even his ideas and arguments are just like those hollow statues of Silenus. If you were to listen to his arguments, at first they'd strike you as totally ridiculous. They're clothed in words as coarse as the hides worn by the most vulgar satyrs. He's always going on about pack asses or blacksmiths or cobblers or tanners. He's always making the same tired old points about the same tired old words. If you are foolish or simply unfamiliar with him, you'd find it impossible not to laugh at his arguments. But if you see them when they open up like the statues, if you go behind their surface, you'll realize that no other arguments make any sense. They're truly worthy of a god, bursting with figures of virtue inside. They're of great, no, of the greatest importance for anyone who really wants to become a truly good man. Well, this is my praise of Socrates, though I haven't spared him my reproach either. I told you how horribly he treated me, and not only me, but also Carmides, Euthydemus, and many others. He has deceived us all. He presents himself as your lover, and, before you know it, you're in love with him yourself. I warn you, Agathon, don't let him fool you. Remember our torments. Be on your guard. Don't wait like the fool in the proverb to learn your lesson from your own misfortune. Alcibiades' frankness provoked a lot of laughter, especially since it was obvious that he was still in love with Socrates, who immediately said to him, You are perfectly sober after all, Alcibiades. Otherwise, you could never have concealed your motive so gracefully. How casually you let it drop, almost like an afterthought at the very end of your speech. As if the real point of all of this has not been simply to make trouble between Agathon and me. You think that I should be in love with you and no one else, while you and no one else should be in love with Agathon. Well, we were not deceived. We've seen through your little satyr play. Agathon, my friend, don't let him get away with it. Let no one come between us. Agathon said to Socrates, I'm beginning to think you're right. Isn't it proof of this that he literally came between us here on the couch? Why would he do this if he weren't set on separating us? But he won't get away with it. I'm coming right over to lie next to you. I love I love the way that part ends. Uh, it's quite humorous. Socrates kind of turning it back on Alcibiades. It's, it's a really good interplay, I, th I think, between the characters. It, it's a great way to end the... Well, it's not quite the end of the dialogue, but it's essentially the end of the dialogue. I think it's a really great way to to tie up all of those perspectives. So, so Andre, your, your thoughts? Yeah, just a few thoughts on um, um, what I think Plato's decision was uh, with these descriptions of Socrates as sort of a bit supernatural. The way I interpret it is just to show how people saw him it's like their per perplexion and wonder uh and it's you can bring many analogies with many prophets in the past there's always myths about them there's always exaggerations which just shows the psychological sort of reaction to a man so unusual for his time so that's what i think was uh, was plato's intent but it could be more multifaceted i don't know hmm. that's really interesting and, and interesting too given what darren said earlier about maybe this foreshadowing of how people came to see Socrates as so powerful that it warranted his being put to death. And, you know, again, why we're talking about Socrates, you know, 2,400 years after Plato wrote about him. So, you know, maybe he didn't truly possess all of these superhuman characteristics, but maybe, as you say, people have come to see him as 
in their psychology as possessing possessing these characteristics because he was so able to have this grip on knowledge and wisdom and I think essentially first principles, you know, he was able to conduct this dialectic to get people involved in this dialectic to lead them to the first principles. But people don't always want to be led to the first principles, as we discovered from the Republic in the allegory of the cave, when the prisoner escaped, saw the light and had to be dragged back into the cave, but was warned that if he told the truth, people would actually try to kill him because they had become so accustomed to the shadows on the walls that uh, the truth would be very foreign and alien to them and something that they might not actually like. And maybe this is actually what happened to Socrates is that, that the truths that he told kind of in this superhuman fashion led to essentially what the prisoner was warned his fate would be when he went back into the cave, if he told the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Thank you. Darren. So another thought I'm just trying to, put together on the spot here <laughs> oh give us a try yeah this this other uh, worldly uh, way in which socrates is depicted i feel like it ties in with actually with alcibiades's uh sense of being torn like his choice situation because it seems like he's um like he feels like he has to it's, it's almost like it's, he has to make a choice about whether he follows like socrates but he's also really afraid of it Right, because we see this, like he he senses that if he follows Socrates, it's almost like he has to give up everything else. It's not like oh, I can have a bit of you know, it's not like you know making a recipe for you know some kind of dish or something. You can have a little bit of a little bit of different things, and you know it's all cool. It's like in his description, it's like he's really drawn to Socrates. He loves Socrates actually, but he's also really afraid of being of going all the way because he feels like he'll have to. He also hates Socrates because that means he'll have to give up you know, his, his political career and, you know, all those ambitions and all those like feelings and desires that he has. Like, I feel like it's connected because Socrates sort of represents almost a kind of a pure principle in a way. Um, I noticed another way in which he's depicted is also, is often solitary. It's like, he's apart from the world. <laughs> um, so, I mean, in, in the very, very end of the dialogue, the last few, you know, lines, right. He's, he's just depicted as a solitary figure who just sort of does his own thing and he's very steady in doing that. <laughs> almost like there's no surprises in a way. Like he is sort of like a superhuman, you know, almost apart from the world, the ordinary world. Like we, we can debate whether, you know, how to what degree that was accurate of the real Socrates. I think, you know, the real Socrates must have been like extraordinary in certain ways. But, you know, maybe, maybe the depiction, you know, it extends that a bit. But I think at least part of both the depiction of Socrates and the real person, like just because the, the way he stood apart and, and his teachings made people feel like it was a choice and uh, like a, a stark choice they have to make about their lives, whether they choose a path, I guess, towards goodness or whether the earthly sort of path. So this also makes this philosophy and like a religion in a way, like there is a kind of choice we have to make. It's depicted analogy of the cave. It's depicted through Alcibiades as sort of being torn in this dialogue. I guess that's another way in which it feels a little bit religious. You know, some people might not like this and that's okay, but I'm just saying this is sort of something I detect. Um, you know, it, it's similar to other religions where, you know, in, in Christianity, like you, there's, there's sort of moments of choice where you have to decide whether you follow the path towards goodness or, you know, or you go the other way. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, but here it's, it's, a, it's a path towards philosophy and it's interesting that philosophy and religion has this connection in Plato. Mm. Sorry if that I yeah. I yeah I was just trying to tie in with uh, yeah. basically yeah. Socrates depiction and yeah 
Alcibiades struggle where it yeah. seems like it was a very stark choice to make. Yeah, I like that that, that choice that uh, it, it seems that they're almost exclusive, mutually exclusive choices. The world of Bacchic frenzy versus you know, the <laughs> contemplation. Yeah. So, yeah, and, uh, and 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 yeah. so yeah, and so it seems like a religious choice almost. Yeah. You know, it's not yeah. like other things where yeah. you you can like have a bit of different things for a meal. It's like the path yeah. of goodness is almost like pure in a way. There's like a choice yeah. you have to make. Transformational. Yeah. Andre. Yeah, it does seem like uh, one of those choices at the at the crossroads, uh, but it's a choice that, that you don't, cannot calculate before you do it it's, it's sort of like a leap of faith Kierkegaard would say mm. um, so it's kind of ironic because Socrates's way of life it is more rational it is more about like knowledge but before you delve into that yeah you sort of just have to give in just trust that it will work out but maybe mm. it won't for for a guy like uh, Alcibiades mm. that seems to be more uh, guided by passions because because if maybe he tries to go into that other way of living, if he cannot fully commit, then he'll see the current way of his living as maybe he'll be disgusted by the way he lives now. So he'll be in that in-between place. He won't be able to commit either way. So it's so the fear that he feels that we can maybe understand it as just normal people, let's say, uh, compared to Socrates. Mm. It is a, a lifelong commitment. It, it's like planting a seed into your head. And then, uh, yeah, you, you start doubting everything, mm. which can be dangerous, some might argue. And maybe that's what the people saw in the Senate when they uh, condemned Socrates eventually. Mm. Yeah, planting that seed makes me think of that that birth metaphor that Diorama talks about and, you know, we're, we're giving birth to something new and we don't know what this new thing is going to be. And maybe for Alcibiades, it's kind of a scary thing, but uh, she said, we're all trying to give birth and maybe it's, you know, again, this art, you know, what is this art that Socrates understands? Maybe it's the art of what's being presented in this, in this uh, display in the symposium. Maybe, maybe this is an artful display of human life. And, and this is what Socrates understands, you know, as we've been talking here, you know, this life is a mixture of both the rational and the irrational. And uh, maybe the art is really finding your way around that, um, navigating that, that uncertainty. So I, I don't know if we can, in, you know, in approximately two or three minutes that remain, if we can draw any, conclusions about this but uh I, I certainly think from what we've been saying you know we, we've been speaking on a couple of levels you know but the practical but the practicalities of daily life versus the grander theory of it all or the grander purpose of it all and that does make me think about what diodema said in terms of this searching for immortality or this path to a timelessness uh or greater good i think as as darren maybe qualified at the last time and so maybe that's part of the the conclusion uh, and that maybe that's part of what's been demonstrated through the through the seven speeches. So Darren, your thoughts? Um, just for the benefit of people who maybe don't like a religious interpretation, <laughs> um, people who don't like religion. When I was reading this, I, I so another way I, I thought of this is that actually I think Socrates could also be um, represented as um, or, or could could be, a symbol or something of uh, a representation of maybe not like a religious figure, but I, I think you can see him as a kind of conscience in a way, you know, which is something more universal, however you flesh that out, 
what made me think of this was how he like he's described as popping in and out of Alcibiades life when he like least wants it wants him to or at least expects it he just suddenly shows up like that seems like something like a pang of conscience <laughs> so I feel like uh, you can interpret it that way and there'll be sort of a more I guess a more humanistic and non-religious way of looking at it not that religion or humanism has to be separate but mm -hmm. just one more comment about this is um so this could relate to how like when Alcibiades says that he's always trying to escape Socrates and he feels deeply ashamed when he encounters Socrates um, because, you know, of how Socrates speaks to his way of life and he's not doing nothing about, he, he uses the word like his way of life. Like that could be conscience, right? You could just read as a, con he's trying to escape his conscience and his conscience makes him feel deeply ashamed about his way of life, you know, his choices in life. He would be happier if Socrates were dead, if you wish one's conscience were dead. Like you did. So I think it's it's actually quite easy to read it this way in a non-religious way. Mm -hmm. And then so where when I said that and thus, you know, Plato, in a way, in writing these dialogues is not letting us escape from Socrates. So in a way, you know, so you could see it as Plato's writing these dialogues and not letting us escape our consciences. Like there's something there's like seeds in us that want the good. And Plato is writing these dialogues to Socrates because, you know, although we we're sort of like Alcibiades, we want to escape this thing that causes us shame and pain, but it's like a very important thing. <laughs> and Plato like is wants to carry that. He, he doesn't want us to escape from Socrates. He wants to continue Socrates legacy. And that's sort of, I guess, a way you could read that as like wanting us to be more conscious or conscience or have more conscience and or I guess you could see that's be more conscious as well. So I guess when coming back and reading Plato, we can all potentially be ashamed over and over again <laughs> in what we're, we are or not or are not doing with our lives. That's true. And and I love Plato. So I feel ashamed every time I, I read it that I'm not as, <laughs> yeah, not as, not as good as, as Plato, I guess, but uh, yeah, no, that that's really good. A pang of conscience. I, I like that. I think that's maybe a, a good way of maybe seeing something that love kind of triggers in us and leads us to some greater thing that that pang of consciousness so we'll we will wind up here so uh Ernest and Andre and and if you'll take us out and think think of some conclusions maybe that we can take away with us Ernest yes I quickly I want to mention there are also big uh, contradictions between uh, religious figures and Socrates First of all, many religious figures claim they know the way of life. When uh, Socrates says, I don't, I know nothing. And another point Socrates makes what's written on, uh, on the temple of, in Delphi, which is very important, know yourself. Uh, so that's big contradiction. So when somebody says Socrates is a religious figure, I, I, I very much disagree with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good good point. And again, reminding us that uh, love is just not just of one person for another, but also love of wisdom, which is philosophy. Uh, so I, I like that. Thank you. Uh, and knowing yourself. And I think maybe maybe part of the all of these perspectives that are being presented is so that we can look at these, relate these to either ourselves or to people we know, and maybe know more about ourselves as a result of all of these different perspectives that we've seen in this dialogue. So that's great. Andre, your thoughts. I was just thinking when Darren was talking about uh, conscience, uh, I think the greatest example maybe in the literature about uh, the struggling with their own conscience is just um, 
Crime and Punishment with Dostoevsky. Maybe the reason there is different because it's about a murder, but you could say Alcibiades is just wrestling with uh, the decision. He's trying to rationalize maybe I should quote unquote murder this idea that there's something more to you know love than the just lust that I'm usually consumed by. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in that sense, uh, I think it's a great way to end the dialogue with with Alcibiades because he seems to be the character that's most in um and struggle with trying to understand himself and to what extent can he guide his passions or to what extent should he commit to one thing or just go to yeah. one pond and then another you know yeah. so yeah yeah that that's great and and yeah does he want is he really able to give birth you know, I think that if Diana says we're all we're all pregnant and all ready to give birth to this beauty, uh, is Alcibiades really ready for that? Yeah, you're right. I think that's a great way to end it. Um, Darren, we just honestly have a minute left. Um, just really quick. Um, I just want to say I really like what Ernest says. Um, said about how um, it, there, there's a important ways in which it's not like a religion. I think that's really important to point out. I only I only wanted to say that there are ways in which it seem it, it's religion like. I think there are many parallels, but it's not. Of course, I I don't think it's the same as other religions. Um, I think it's like in the way that personal choice matters, um, and the way it's like totally all consuming of one's life. I think. <laughs> philosophy can be sort of seen as like a religion in this way and Socrates being like a founding figure but it's not like religion though because um as Ernest says like reason and rationality plays a really big role of it and so I so this is why I think like Plato it actually is a very has, has a very compelling path for people who are interested in both these aspects of life like I think Plato provides a very compelling synthesis of both the rational and non-rational aspects of life and how love actually this force that seems like celebrated by all cultures has a central role in Plato so he brings all that together in a package and I, so I feel like he brings ra- reason and rationality central to it. it it makes maybe a more compelling synthesis than other typical religions or you know other things we more conventionally think of as, of, as religion I like that and that, that I think is a good way to summarize a lot of what we've discussed today uh, so so thank you for that yeah I think it's I have learned such a great deal from this dialogue you know again i've read it a number of times each time i read it i see different things and uh, i think maybe among all of plato's dialogues this is the one that presents the most perspectives and that's a really interesting thing that i hadn't thought of before and this one is going to really stick with me so we've had three great sessions on the symposium and uh, i am overdue for posting the the second session which i'll get up on the online shortly and it'd be really interesting to re-listen to these and see what further conclusions we can add to this as we go further. I think um, in this season, I'll wrap up the season with two more short dialogues. Um, next time we'll do, in, in two weeks, we'll do Ion, which is a short dialogue, only about a dozen pages. And then uh, two weeks after that, we'll do the Crito, which is, again, another short dialogue. So. I think we might find some themes from the symposium coming into ION the next time uh, we meet. So looking forward to that in two weeks. And want to, again, thank everybody for being here. Uh, we've had a, an absolutely great discussion and um, yeah, really interested to uh, see what we can make of the, uh, the next two dialogues that we're going to look at to wrap up season three of Plato's Pod. And we'll go on to have some interesting discussions over the summer, I think, to tie some of what Plato says 
to things that are actually going on in the world today. So I'm really interested in exploring that uh, over the course of the summer. Thanks to all for being here, and I hope to see you in two weeks. And for those who want to stay online for a casual, unrecorded half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general, I welcome you too. And then otherwise, um, I hope uh, everybody has a, a good day and uh, look forward to seeing you in two weeks.